Welcome back to the Bitcoin Layer. I'm Nick Batia, and today we have James Palmer. He is the deputy editor of Foreign Policy Magazine. He also writes the weekly newsletter for FP called China Brief. James, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tell us about your background and how you got involved in covering China, please. So I moved to China in 2003, um, ironically enough, because I was writing a book about Mongolia. But Mongolia is um, actually quite hard to live in if you're if you're not working for a big NGO or the you know the United Nations, the World Bank, and so on, and you want to have little luxuries like heating in the winter. The supply of housing was very poor in 2003, so I was like, okay, I'll, I'll go to China and you know get a sort of random job there. And then I'll I'll go up to Mongolia, you know, to to do research. So I did that. I liked China. I stuck around. Um, I worked in various layers of both Chinese and foreign media before taking uh, did another book on that. This time was actually about Chinese history on the Tangshan earthquake of two thousand of nineteen seventy six, and then um, started writing for uh, like long form pieces for Western magazines, and eventually took on the job at Farm Policy in 2016. Great. And so talk to us about your overall framework for China. How do you approach uh, the research um, coming from the outside? And, you know, you've spent a lot of time there. So what are your main sources and what is your process to extracting information out of China? So this is a very interesting question at the moment because, you know, almost everybody's um, in Western media is coping with basically having been cut off from China. We've seen expulsions of people on J visas, the journalist visa, uh, and people have had to relearn the skills of covering an authoritarian state from the outside. The risks um, of talking to foreign journalists in China became much steeper after 2012, 2013 or so, when the new kind of political climate under Xi Jinping just made stuff much harder. And while I lived in China until uh, 2000, late 2018, um, I and many others have had to learn to do this from afar. So I rely on a network of you know sources that I built up while I was there, um, who I still some of whom I've lost contact with or can't risk contact with because they're in politically sensitive situations. Um, I look at Chinese social media and diaspora media. I look at direct Chinese government documents because even even though Chinese statistics aren't reliable, the ways in which they're unreliable will tell you something. Um, and increasingly, I and others have used um, tools like data scraping to basically pull large amounts of information off Chinese official websites that can tell us something about what's going on. So for instance, we've seen people make great use of um, procurement documents that showed things like mass acquisition of barbed wire, security cameras, and so on. Um, to look at the camps in Xinjiang. And then there's also, of course, a very rich like Chinese diaspora, which is tied in to um, the mainland in, in one way or another. Um, and you can sort of draw upon that and build up sources within that, as well as, as well as sources at the US government end. Now with the US government end, of course, you have to be conscious of the ways in which people, as with any story, can, can want to, to play a certain angle, push a certain angle, that goes doubly for anything you get from US security or intelligence sources, because there's very clear, you know, there are very clear sort of um, approaches and angles there. Um, and you don't want to, to 
to turn yourself into nothing but a vessel for um, a particular agenda. Uh, but then you you also um, you also I think learn a certain set of kind of heuristics uh, so, uh, of ways to approach the world if you spend a lot of time in China. Um, you learn, for instance, about the incentives that drive Chinese governance and the ways in which people behave on an individual level within that governance system. So if you're a, if you're a mid-ranking Chinese official, um, how do you react to these orders coming um, down from the top? How do you react to protests coming from below? What are you, not the system, but what are you personally worried about and what actions are you likely to take as a result? Which orders are going to be followed and which orders are going to be shoved to the side or ignored? And the more time you spent inside the system, um, whether that's working with local governments in China, working in state media in China, working with Chinese government officials as a U.S. diplomat, um, all things that I've known people to, to to do who have a good sense of this, the more you build up an, an understanding of how that, that politics works in practice. And that's very interesting to hear about how widespread the sources have to be to piece together information when you're not uh, on the ground and even understanding that uh, the way that you are given information from both officials in China and officials in the US are going to have some embedded bias in there. And so, you know, your job becomes then filtering all that and delivering it to the reader. So what are you, um, what are you seeing from the protest side? You mentioned that there have been protests in China. We from the Western media side, got a sense that this is maybe one of the largest m movements in recent Chinese history in terms of the dis uh, or dissatisfaction at, at the level of the, the people. So can you tell us about the protests and your outlook on the stability of the current regime? So I think we can break the protests into two parts, um, arguably even three parts. So the first, you had the Urumqi fire um, on the, th the Thursday night before the, the protests two weeks ago. The Urumqi fire was this terrible fire in which at least 10 people, maybe as many as 40, were killed um, in a fire that was rapidly attributed to um, zero COVID measures blocking security exits and preventing firefighters from reaching uh, the disaster on time. Uh, we're still not certain how how true that actually is. It does seem like does seem like zero COVID project measures played some role, but the internet certainly see the Chinese internet very rapidly seized onto the idea. So you had a big wave of protests first of all in Xinjiang itself, mostly by Han Chinese. Um, then you had another wave of protests across the country against zero COVID policy. Um, then you had a smaller group of protests. Um, hundreds or so of people over time, a lot of students, a lot of upper middle, upper middle class kind of urban intellectuals, which got more expressly anti-regime, where there were actual calls for, um, where there were actual calls for, you know, Xi Jinping stepped down, Communist Party stepped down, much more explicit language. So the anti-COVID protests themselves, um, to some degree, very clearly worked, like China ended its effectively ended most of its COVID controls on Wednesday um, and was giving signs of, of loosening um, the week after the protests. I think 
um, that combined with existing numbers that they were looking at internally, they were looking at very, very bad economic data as a result of zero COVID policies. They were looking at um, Omicron numbers, which seem to have been growing despite the zero COVID policies. And so the protests might not have been the main cause, but they were, I think, they added significant weight to a faction inside the leadership that was already arguing for the end or the serious modification of zero COVID policies. Um, the the sort of more anti anti party specifically anti party protests uh, have resulted in some arrests and some some threats against participants by the state. Will probably there probably be more. Um, they're not really significant in terms of like they're not go- they're not something that's going to get people more out onto the streets calling for the downfall of the Communist Party absent as another significant governance failure significant governance failure. But they're important because they're the biggest protests of that type we've seen in decades, and they show that there's still um, they show that there's still a, a pretty substantial um, group of Chinese people who who adhere to what we would think of as basically liberal like values, liberal democratic values. Because remember, of course, even though the the protest numbers were small, the risk threshold is very high. Like you are um, in a highly surveilled state, taking on a severe chance of being imprisoned, losing your job, being, uh, being um, I was about to say sacked from the university, expelled, there we go, that's the word we're looking for, being expelled from the university and so on. So there's a, a real, um, so the fact that people were willing to do this indicates a level of commitment and, and anger that's perhaps stronger than we than we thought. Even the zero COVID protests though, I think you have to roll in the general restriction of freedoms under Xi Jinping played a role in that. Um, it wasn't that, so zero COVID had got to the point where people were not anticipating anything getting better. They were feeling a frustration and an anger at being locked in their homes, at being banned from public spaces, at a constant and bureaucratic, bureaucratic interference. That also reflected that these things had been happening, not to the same degree, but the, the loss of freedoms, the controls and movement, the surveillance had been coming into place before zero COVID started. And one of the telling things I think that I, I've heard from a couple of people was that they, before zero COVID, they um, had been skeptical of the stories about concentration camps, about mass restrictions in Xinjiang, in Xinjiang against the Uyghur minority. But after zero COVID, they had kind of realized, they had kind of realized um, if they can do this to us, they can do it to the to the we. They can then they were doing it to the Uyghur too. Um, the sense of not being of of like uh, that anybody could be could be seized, could be taken, got stronger. So while I don't think the regime is in sort of any immediate danger from the protests themselves at this point, I think I think there's a couple of indicators. I think firstly there is a limit beyond which you can't push the Chinese public. Um, and that given the success of the protests, you may find that there are, that, that people are somewhat emboldened to come out, especially if they feel that others are coming out on on um, other restraint shot other restraints on like daily life. You know, they're not gonna be it's pretty hard to get people out on the streets because they pulled all the American TV shows off streaming. 
Um, but once you've got a, a direct clear cause, the fact that they pulled all the American TV shows off streaming or most of them is going to, like, does affect people. Um, and I think you do have an immediate danger to Xi Jinping. Uh, he was very closely associated with zero COVID policy. His position has, I think, been weakened within the party. And I would not be surprised to see a serious kind of bureaucratic move against him um, in the next sort of three to four months. Um, Chinese politics, you, you can have a situation where somebody seems very untouchable, but all that untouchability depends upon their credibility, their authority. And if they're, if they're taken out in the right way within the system, that can go very fast. What could also happen is what happened after the Great Leap Forward, the famine of uh, 1959 to 1960, that um, where Mao Zedong was challenged within the party because his policies had caused this enormous failure, this uh, death of you know 40 or 50 million people. Um, but he, in fact, came back and uh, and effectively took out his challenges through internal purges, using the fact that they had gone against him um, as an indicator that they were dangerous, as an indicator that he needed to take them out. So you might see the people, and we don't know who they were, um, the, uh, you might see the people in sight who were, who were arguing for the end of zero COVID policy getting purged in the next year or two, even though they were right, because the fact that they were arguing for it and she was mostly arguing um, to continue it, as far as we can tell, um, makes them a political risk to she. Interesting. So you're saying that um, there is a chance of some bureaucratic backlash within the CCP against Xi Jinping because of uh, the zero COVID policies that are basically something that he has owned over the last mm -hmm. couple of years. Um, and so, uh, but the other side of it is that he can come in and, and purge those who are against him and regain his control. So I know it's hard to assign probabilities here, but can you give the audience a sense of what what's more your baseline expectation here over the my, next year? My baseline, I would say 70% baseline that she um, has enough control and power to to like come back, keep in keep in command. And I say that partially because of the the lack of any real alternative challenger that we know of. Um, but the politics of Zhongnanhai, which is the, the Chinese equivalent of the Kremlin, are very opaque. We have very few sources. Um, we were really working on, you know, guesswork and supposition um, and, mo and previous models of leadership struggles for all of this, because the, the amurta, this code of silence that's exerted within the top levels of the Chinese Communist Party leadership is very tight. So yes, it presents a big challenge to try to assess what's going on um, within the top ranks of the CCP. Tell us about the Chinese economy now. We're coming off of a couple years of zero COVID policy, um, a, some very slow economic activity in China, also certain global trade relationships breaking down and being reformed with the potential of reshoring. So what's your outlook on the Chinese economy, where it stands today coming out? And is there any optimism in the Chinese economy looking forward now? I would say that we're, we're seeing a transition from an 8% growth economy to a 3% growth economy, um, which has huge you know, implications for how China sees its future. That's a process that was already sort of on its way 
before zero COVID, but which has been sped up by zero COVID and the problems around it and by COVID itself. Um, so I would, um, I think there's, there's uh, four big problems and one point of optimism for the Chinese economy uh, in the next sort of few years. So first big problem is you're about to have an actual wave of COVID in a country that is not prepared for it. The numbers in Beijing um, seem to be going up in Wuhan elsewhere, seem to be going up way, way quicker than, than most of us anticipated after zero COVID policies ended. And it also may be, there may be an element of sort of panic in that. It may be that people are, that you have the, the winter colds and so, and so on, but there are indications that like the PCR uh, positivity rate in in Wuhan is over 50% in some hospitals. Like there's just a lot of COVID and it's a partially vaccinated country with not very good vaccines. Um, I don't think you're going to be seeing kind of quite the, I don't think you're going to be seeing, um, and uh, literally as we, as I say this, um, two of my friends in Beijing message me to say they have COVID. Um, it's uh, and that is two out of a very small group of remaining Western friends uh, there. So, so literally um, out of the out of the Westerners I know in 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 Beijing, I think um, we can now say forty percent have COVID. Um, the so you're going to get this mass wave of COVID. I don't think it's going to be quite on like India levels. You remember the worst times in when was it like um, early. Early 2021 was the big wave. Or late 2020. It was about. It was in about May of of 2021. Yes, and you know that that sort of where you know you just had this. Uh, I think the official numbers were half a million, but the unofficial estimates were like five, maybe five million people died, and a real sense of just terror. Um, I don't think it's going to be quite. I I don't th think it's going to be quite that bad. Um, I think that the I think that the relative weakness of Omicron and the um, and the reasonably high levels of at least two dose um, vaccination, not many boosters yet, will take off some of the edge of it. But I think you're still probably looking at you know maybe a million deaths in the next six months, and that's even with zero COVID gone, you're going to get people not wanting to get COVID itself. You're going to get risk aversion. And you're going to have a fear for a while that the government could put lockdown measures back in place. So people are not going to be spending, traveling any of the things that you would that that you would want to kind of um, improve the economy for, for domestic consumption. Um, and just a lot of and a lot of work, a lot of supply is going to be disrupted as a result. It had been disrupted because of zero COVID. Now it's going to be disrupted because of COVID. It really was really a wicked problem, you know. So you've got that, then you've got the property crisis. Um, China, the, the single biggest growth area and the only worthwhile investment area for ordinary Chinese people has been property for 20 years. Um, you could, there are a lot of businesses who were not making any money in anything except property. Uh, when, um, so HNA, uh, the former Hainan Airlines, which went under a few years ago, I remember looking into its finances about four years before it went under and finding that like, this was just, this had stopped being an airline company and was basically a property investment company. Um, and that's the case with a lot of stuff, even like the cinema, even like the cinema industry is really, is to some degree, really a real estate industry. Um, it, 
they buy up big areas for film theme parks and studios and then actually just convert them into like regular apartment regular apartment usage in order to evade um or get cheaper terms on on buying the land uh probably is going downhill um it hasn't the property prices haven't crashed completely yet because um the government keeps putting pressure on uh real estate firms not to lower prices in order to avoid panic and there's, so there's not really a market situation but where people have the market powers buying and people haven't been buying like the numbers have plummeted by 50 or 60 percent they're going to try and revive the bubble they might be able to keep it alive for another year or two with government measures but but ultimately it is a, a has been a huge bubble um uh a few years ago, well, about 2017, I was looking at Beijing real estate inside Second Ring, so the very center of the city, inside the Second Ring Road. And the per square foot, the prices there were double Manhattan. Um, and Beijing is not a, not as nice a city as Manhattan, to, uh, not a, as nice a place as Manhattan to live in. There's less money um, around that. Like this made no, no, no sense. You had a huge vacancy rate. But but you just had a lot of money being invested in or laundered in prop or laundered in property and a lot of broken metrics a lot um and that that's going to really hurt both economically and socially uh, people's wealth is invested in these in, in property in the same way as american wealth but without even the compensating factor that american wealth also has like the stock market and so on in china it's pretty much purely property the stock market is a very minor you know player then you've got the demographic crisis. So um, the, the, the population is aging out. The one-child policy caused um, what we call the inverted pyramid, where you have now uh, you know, a single couple having to support two sets of parents and um, more of an hourglass than a pyramid now, but also now having to support children. People haven't been having the children that the government expected or wanted when they lifted the policy because they're too too expensive the the child rearing cost is so high um and and because you know once people get to a certain level of income they choose to have less kids all over the world everywhere it's like human nature having kids is really hard um and when people have kids and they have a choice about how many kids they want to have it normally ends up at being like 1.5 or so um so that's going to, um, and you know, China depended, China's growth was built on the back of a large working age population that um, was also um, literate and numerate, like at a middle school to early high school level. And that's kind of a perfect combination for, for um, like global capital. Uh, and then you've got the breakdown in US-China relations where you know look americans are going to be paying 20 percent more for their tvs like at one level but but at the chinese level it's um you're going to see you're, you're going to see job losses and investment losses as a result of of u.s policy multinationals are increasingly scared of the u.s government more than they are the chinese government when it comes to making these decisions and that's really new they was you know for a long time they avoided any kind of conflict with the chinese government because they were because they they were so dependent upon these Chinese factories, now they're worried about what the U.S. will do to them. And there's lots and lots of weak points or points of attack that the U.S. can bring to bear through um, you know through all kinds of departments too. This really has become a kind of you know 
something close to a whole of government effort in the US and that there are lots of people in the US government thinking about ways to make it more difficult for US businesses to invest in China at the moment. Um, the one bright point is that once the COVID wave passes, um, you will, uh, and, and you, I think you'll probably get two COVID waves. You'll get the city wave, the big city wave, and then you'll get the countryside wave. And in some ways, the countryside wave will be worse because um, m medical care in China is pretty bad as a whole. The number of ICU beds is one tenth of the United States. But a lot of that, a lot of the worst deprivation is concentrated in rural regions. There's a huge gap between rural and urban and urban healthcare. But once those waves are gone, you do have a lot of pent up demand. You're going to have like a, a solid year and a half of pent up demand. And uh, if you look at like Vietnam after they ended um, zero COVID me measures in, I think, like, sept uh, I think September 2021, but I wouldn't swear to it. Um, the They went from, you know, sort of 2% recession to 7.5% growth. So you might have, you're going to have like a good year. You're going to have a year where basically, or where, you know, once people feel it's safe to do so, people will be um, traveling, will be spending, will be making more, you know, more interesting and risky business decisions. So you've got that short-term bump, but I don't think that short-term bump should, will compensate for a pretty rough, like mid-term future. So I want to follow up on a, on a few of those things. First, talk about the demographic problem that you that you cite with an aging population, um, low low birth rates. What is the you you mentioned that one couple is having to pay for two sets of parents as well as their children. So, what is the direct first order of effect impact on the economy from the demographic issues in China? Oh, well. Two things. Firstly, just the shrinking of the working age population. Like, and we're just beginning to see that. Like, it's the the numbers starting to go down, um, coupled with the burden to the state of older people. Now, the state's going to try and push that burden onto families, um, but that's going to severely limit, like, that's going to severely limit dis consumption, particularly kind of discriminatory consumption, um, because you know you're pretty much everybody. You know, your spare income is going to be going to paying your parents' medical bills and paying your kids' school fees um, and a bunch of other stuff associated with that. So you're not going to be spending money on on anything else to some degree. And you're going to be, again, just very... The thing I would say from a personal level of seeing people go through this in the last few years, very risk-averse and very inclined towards government jobs because... It, back to the old kind of iron rice bowl feeling that the government job won't go away. Um, that's also, I saw a lot of people to kind of become more cautious of taking tech jobs because you had the big tech crackdown by the government that made people feel that this was a much more, this would be this lauded high growth sector. Um, now it's seen as a lot riskier. Um, now, even the iron rice bowl might have some cracks in it because local government finances are pretty bad. Um, they've been bad for a while, but they were able to make up the badness with land sales. Uh, so once the property goes, the land sales go and you you have like big, already big, like shortages of for local government budgets. And in some places they've had trouble paying salaries and paying, 
paying pensions, which that's a real recipe for like big unrest if that gets worse. Um, because being able to like at some level, a lot of Chinese decisions have been made with the premise that the government, when it comes to its supporters, is reliable. That the government will that the government will pay out. The government will cover you. Um, and um, in what's uh, I think very good Chinese economist whose name I completely blank on right now calls the guaranteed bubble. The idea that um, that you can invest in risky things because the government will never allow the level of social instability caused by them collapsing altogether. So the government won't let property prices fall because if property prices fell, there would be mass social unrest. Now, this worked for a long time. But then there comes a level where there are too many problems for the government to deal with and where um, China's state capacity, although strong, is still is is still finite. So talk about the property sector a little bit more. You mentioned that demand is falling off of a cliff, but the price isn't reacting because the government is asking the property sector not to mark to market what uh, would clear the market essentially. So you have massive supply on the market for sale, many of those locations being vacant. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned also that Chinese people don't use the stock market as a savings tool to nearly the same extent that they do here in the United States. So my question is, what is the government going to do in the face of the supply not clearing because they've asked prices to not be lowered are they going to be taking well we're already we're already seeing them we're already so mostly it involves trying to provide support to buyers so effectively offering like effectively in some cases offering to to take on some of the costs directly um getting rid of the restrictions that they had put in in order to try and cool the market um, which had never been very successful, partially because whenever, partially because whenever you had such measures, they um, there were local protests and they were on the and the measures were off, often then lifted. Like attempts at putting a property tax in almost almost entirely failed. Um, and um, I don't I they're they're pulling you know sort of every tool they have available subsidies. Um, lifting measures, um, taking out restraints on buying multiple properties, all this kind of thing. I don't think any. I I don't think it's going to work. I just think it's an, an intractable problem, and they they really need to bite the bullet. But they but they're really feeling the pain of biting the bullet at the moment. I think what they might be trying to do is push the problem forward by like a year. Um, like if we can kind of keep it if we can kind of keep it alive, if we can get enough sales that the if we can bail out the real estate companies, which are in severe difficulties for the next year, you at least get it to the point where the crisis comes after the zero COVID crisis and the COVID wave crisis um, and buy yourself a little bit of time. And I think that's probably, I think realistically, that's probably the best they can do. But to some degree, they've, they're just going to have to like ride it out. And this probably, it all contributes to your thesis that China is moving from an 8% growth regime to a 3% growth regime, as it really faces waves of challenges with COVID, with the property sector, 
And then, of course, the American-Chinese relations breaking down, as you mentioned, and now countries. And when you when you speak about these countries, you're talking about countries, let's say, in Asia or in Europe that are now more afraid of the U.S. government reaction to a pro-China move. So what is China doing about this, about this wave of now uh, countries going back into the American access of threats, mostly behind the scenes, trying to leverage its own, you know, it's still, it's still the biggest trade partner of, of ASEAN states. Um, political dynamics in one of the big issues is the multinationals like, like Apple and so on. Again, Apple was not, was not afraid of the American government for a long time, um, on China. It is now, um, and you're starting to see those links being broken. Um, I, I think that in fact, that's going to tie into a kind of general xenophobia, anti-foreign feeling in China, rather than trying to woo those, to woo those companies back or keep them invested. There's going to be a lot of, well, fuck you kind of feeling about it. Like, like we don't need you anymore. Problem is they do still need them. Now you're also going to get, you're also going to get attempts to lean on both a national and a corporate level on, on people's personal investments and connections. You know, the Chinese had a very good playbook for working with elites. They don't have a great playbook for working with the public elsewhere, but they have a strong playbook for appealing to elites, for being, for binding elites into these, um, these systems. Um, they're good at appealing to people's ego, basically, um, but also offering them pretty direct incentives. Um, so I think, I think something like the, um, you, I think they'll try coercive measures and they'll try threats. I don't think they're very good at persuasion at the moment. They could under, if, if the central leadership changes, they might get better at persuasion again. Um, but as it is the shift to this kind of aggressive diplomacy, this kind of winner's diplomacy, where they thought that they were, they thought that they were, you know, do, that they were, that they had the strength to basically bully other people into other countries into um, submission. I don't think that's going to go away uh, just because it hasn't worked. I think, in fact, you're going to get a, you're going to get a doubling down on a lot of it. Like, um, you're going to get your you're going to get a lot of stuff, a lot of decisions being made because of domestic politics, not because of the international situation. And James, our audience at the Bitcoin layer knows that we cover Bitcoin through a global macroeconomic lens. And that global macro lens really takes uh, a strong signal from the interest rate market. And that's my personal background as a rates trader. And looking at the moves at the Federal Reserve over the last year and tightening of financial conditions and interest rate policy has really put the whole global economy on watch. And like you mentioned about be starting to Chinese families starting to be more conservative, thinking about having to pay for the health care of their parents. Similarly, the globe is trying is now on caution in terms of looking forward at slowing economic growth and tightening their belt. So my question is about the chip sector and the military in China and potential moves against Taiwan. One of the thesis that has been floated to me that I, I don't disagree with is that part of the Federal Reserve's policy, not all of it, 
and not necessarily the dominant force. But part of the policy is to affect the Chinese ability to make their own chips over the next half to one decade. And if you slow the global economy and you restrict, or let's say the legislation that has come out of a bipartisan situation from DC, starting in the Trump administration with Robert Lighthizer and going with into the Biden administration, which when they took over the transition team said, we are not changing anything with regard to our relationship with China. So back to the question, do you see that a slower global economy will affect the Chinese ability to make their own chips, which will affect their ability to potentially invade Taiwan or get more aggressive on the military side? So I, I think it will play a role. I don't think there's, a, there's really a deliberate effort in, on behalf of the Fed there. I think we can very clearly see the deliberate bits of, of going after the Chinese chip industry, which the US government is doing in, in, multiple, in multiple ways, legis like legislatively, um, in recruitment-wise, in terms of building up their own industries or strengthening Taiwan's too. Um, I don't think it's a major military factor. Look, chips are important. But it's not like it's not like we put it's not like you know we all the Taiwanese put like kill kill switches inside our chips for if them being used for bad purposes like the, the global chip industry has been used um, in military contexts that are anti-American in in many you know many ways from the Russian invasion now which admittedly going very badly but um, they I would say they they're more worried uh, they they're more worried about the potential ability to to squeeze off to to squeeze off production um which does affect it does affect like at, like military plans but on a much more kind of like mid to long term basis like it affects the speed of chinese of of chinese military build up um and they they have but also you know they 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 just made they made like domestic chip production such a big priority and they failed to do it. And that's had all kinds of implications. And so there's a degree to which this is used as a political weapon in quite a clever though possibly unintentional way by by the Americans. Because by, um, by helping prevent China from reaching this domestic chip goal, they've caused all this fallout in the Chinese system because somebody has to be blamed for the failure. And the more time that the Chinese leadership spends in internal fighting and kind of skullduggery, um, the less effective it is. Um, you know, you want your opponents to be doing stupid purges. And we, we've just seen a big purge around what was called rather wonderfully the big fund. The big fund was the, um, the fund set up with a bunch of local governments and Chinese banks in 20... 2015, 2016, I think, um, to that was supposed to invest very heavily in uh, uh, um, domestic in domestic chip production, um, and they missed their goals by such a long way for 2020, 2021. They were, I think, supposed to have gotten to 40% domestic chip production by then, and they were and they're less than 10%. Um, so you then had all these people associated with the big fund, important people, government ministers, serious financiers being rolled up for corruption. Now they were corrupt. Everybody in China is. 
you you have to be decrypted to participate in the system. But the, but but taking out your own taking out your own talent and people's like fear people's fear of being taken out affects the way they they do business affects the their ability to to like plan effect to plan effectively themselves. James, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time and your China expertise here at the Bitcoin layer. Quickly, just give our audience where they can find you. Um, so Foreign Policy's China Brief, uh, easy. Uh, subscribe to it by um, on our website, www.foreignpolicy.com. And I'm on Twitter at Beijing Palmer. James Palmer, thank you so much for joining us today at the Bitcoin layer. Thank you. The Bitcoin layer is sponsored by Voltage, enterprise-grade provider of Bitcoin and Lightning Network infrastructure. Make sure to go spin up your own node today. Mm-hmm.